friends, this is Joanna Brooks, fellow traveler in Mormon feminism and author of the Book of Mormon Girl, with a special request for you. You know, since the beginning of the Mormon feminist movement, we have published our own books, we have supported our own art projects, our own intellectuals, and I'm asking you one more time to pony up in support of one of our Mormon feminist sisters who I think is the most exciting and soon-to-be-most-accomplished public historian in Mormonism today. That's our girl, Lindsay Hansen Park, who tears it up on this podcast each week, bringing us incredible insights about the Mormon past, including polygamy and its persistent influence on the way we live our lives today. Lindsay does her thing, bringing us brilliance for pennies. What does she make? Cents on the dollar that every male Mormon podcaster makes. If that, it's up to us. It's up to us. If Mormon feminist history matters to you. If having incisive, intelligent critique of racial inequality, gender inequality in the Mormon church matters to you, will you support this podcast? As Mormon feminists have always done for each other, we've always published our own books. We've always supported our own arts. Let's pitch in to support one of our own, doing crucial intellectual work that's going to stand the test of time. That's right. Go to Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast.org look for the donate button and use paypal or whatever other means are at your disposal to become a monthly subscriber join me in becoming a subscriber to this podcast just ten dollars a month twenty dollars a month and you can hold your head high and know that you're contributing to a long history of mormon sisters doing it for themselves thank you Welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series where we try to understand and untangle the practice of Mormon plural marriage. If this is your first time tuning in, please go back all the way back to episode one. I know that's a lot of episodes. This series is meant to walk you through the history so you have context for what we're talking about in the interview today. It's really important. I would also really like to encourage my listeners to become subscribers of the podcast. This podcast is funded on your generous donations, and it's very difficult for me to ask for money. And this is sort of the problem that we talk about with the equal pay and and the gender wage gap happening. It's very difficult for me to ask for money. Uh, A lot of my male counterparts who are podcasting are making more (laughs) than I am making. And I I think I deserve it. I'm doing a lot of work. So uh, if you're going to donate and you enjoy this podcast, please donate at yearofpolygamy.com in the donate section or Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast.org. Today in the interview, I'm going to interview... Uh, someone that if you're familiar with Mormon fundamentalists at all, you will know the name, Claude Colley. Claude Colley is sort of the spokesperson for Centennial Park. He's considered the town's intellectual. And he is a wonderful man willing to speak openly. And he's done interviews and he writes for Pathios and he's done all kinds of interviews to sort of bring his group's history into the light. Now, I've had a very difficult time talking to women I, I've mentioned this before, but trying to get women in the groups to talk on the podcast has been very challenging. And I've come to realize there are a number of reasons for that. A lot of them are cultural. Some groups actually aggressively prohibit 
you know, women from speaking out. But I think there's a culture of fear. There's a big mistrust from the media because of past experiences. And then there are other reasons for, for why people wouldn't want to speak on this podcast. But I can get men. And so I really want to do this podcast through the lens of women. But Claude was generous enough to come on. And I just want to point out that he is an apostle in the church. He's a spiritual leader. He is going to speak from that perspective. So I kind of look at this interview when I asked Claude to speak on some the experience of some women, and that was probably unfair of me because that's like asking a stake president in the LDS church to comment on the young women's program. And so, of course, a stake president can talk about a hierarchical sort of leadership role, uh, how the program is structured and outlined, but a stake president cannot speak to the individual diverse experiences that young women might have growing up. And so I want you to keep that context in mind when we're talking about those things. Some interesting things about Claude, this is just a complete side note, but I found it sort of a fascinating uh, question to explore, sociological question. One of Claude's children uh, is apparently in the Minutemen militia in Arizona where they sort of uh, border, they police the borders and they consider themselves American patriots. And, I, and I've linked to this Salt Lake Tribune article. It's a fantastic, interesting read where they talk all about uh, Claude Colley's son. And it's it, this interesting question of figuring out how someone growing up in a fundamentalist background, who I assume is still practicing fundamentalist, can call himself a patriot when you have so many tensions and struggles with the government. And when you yourself do not have some of the legal protections or are claiming that you don't have the legal protections that uh, you do not want undocumented workers or undocumented um, people to to have. So I find that a fascinating sort of uh, dichotomy. So make sure you check out that Salt Lake Tribune article about his son. Now, you remember in our last episode, we interview FLDS historian Ben Bisline. Ben Bisline writes quite a bit about Claude in his book. And of course, they were taken from his journal entries that were eventually made into a book called The Polygamous, A History of Colorado City, Arizona by Benjamin G. Bisline. But he writes in his journal on April 15th, 1990, that Claude Colley was called to the priesthood. He was ordained as an apostle by Del Timpson. Del Timpson on that day was said to have ordained John Timpson and Claude Colley as apostles. Of course, John was his son. Claude was his stepson. And there was some controversy with this this council. And I'll link to a page from Ben Bisline's book so you can sort of read about this. The reason why I bring this up, this sort of controversial thing, is not to delegitimize Claude Colley's claim. But it sort of highlights for me this theme with Centennial Park. The Centennial Park group is really, really focused on the line of authority. They claim they have the one true line of authority. They interpret the way the priesthood is is organized in a little bit different way than most groups, including the, the LDS church. But there are a lot of similarities, and I think it's a legitimate interpretation as well. Uh, we're going to talk about it more, and I'm going to let Claude explain it. But basically, how it looks is when when Brigham Young, you know, took over the LDS Church from Joseph Smith, and he claimed he was going to be the president of the quorum, and he wasn't going to be the prophet because no one could replace Joseph, and that was part of the way that he got the line of authority. And again, you can go back to feministmormonhousewifepodcast.org, and you can look up our episode on the secession crisis. It's not in the year of polygamy series, but it's it's an episode with John Hamer and Ben Park and a lot of brilliant minds. But they talk about this. Centennial Park 
sees themselves in a sort of similar light. They believe that the that the priesthood, that these ordinances, the keys are run through a council. And it's sort of this consensus-based council. They do not believe in what the FLDS sort of developed into, which we talked about in the history of the FLDS, the one-man rule. I see that LDS church as having sort of a combination of the two. We do have a consensus-based model with the, with the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And it's sort of, you know, they've recently said in the last few years that they run it sort of boardroom meeting style where everyone sits around a conference table and they discuss. This is more closer to how Centennial Park runs things. Of course, culturally and doctrinally, there are some arguments to be made with a, with an LD, the LDS being closer to the one-man rule type thing. We have a real, maybe misunderstanding, I'm not quite sure if that's the right word, of how the prophet functions. I don't think it's generally understood amongst the LDS body what the role of the prophet is of the church. I mean, we hear, you know, apostles like Downey Chokes being called a seer and a revelator. So it's, it's really, it's really messy, but it's important to understand the Centennial Park are really focused on this line of authority because again, they claim that they have this line of authority. Now, Claude was the very first to point out that he is telling from his perspective that other groups would not agree on this. And he was very generous in that interpretation. I think leaving room most of the time for other interpretations as well. As a refresher, I'm going to just cover the history of that a little bit. We're going to be talking about Heber J. Grant a lot more. It's important to note that it's pretty it's pretty well documented and well assumed that John Taylor, President John Taylor, was beloved amongst most Mormon fundamentalists. He was considered a hero. Wilford Woodruff is kind of fuzzy. You have mixed reviews on him. And then Joseph F. Smith and Heber J. Grant after that really starts to get into some territory of, of um, how different fundamentalist groups feel about these men. And that is because through those four prophets, those through roles, there's disagreement about who got lines of authority from whom. And as you'll see after this episode, as we start to get into that history, there's a, there's a precedence for that. It's really foggy, and I, I learned today that someone in the AUB is even claiming that up until David O. McKay was helping AUB leaders sanction polygamous marriages. So, really interesting, really controversial stuff, not really well documented. But Heber J. Grant, you you need to remember that he wasn't a polygamist when he became the president of the church in 1918. But he had been a, a polygamist up until 1908 when his wife Emily died. So he was one of the members of the Quorum of the Twelve at the time that was living openly with his plural wives up until 1901. So after 1890 Manifesto, he still lived with his plural wives and even took them to his Japan mission and traveled to visit the European missions in 1903. So if you do the math on that, it's basically the LDS Church has had non-polygamous presidents for about the past 70 years. But prior to that, it was about 112 years with a polygamous church president. I mean, we're a little bit over halfway. It won't be until about 2057 that the church will have had an equal 50-50 balance of years with polygamous and non-polygamous presidents. Historian Ron Walker would say this of Grant, Heber J. Grant, quote, in 1916, his, sen his seniority brought him to the presidency of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. 
Two years later, Church President Joseph F. Smith, on his deathbed, took Grant's hand and said, The Lord bless you, my boy. The Lord bless you. You have got a great responsibility. Always remember that this is the Lord's work and not man's. The Lord is greater than any man. He knows whom he wants to lead his church and never makes any mistakes. The Lord bless you. On November 23, 1918, Heber J. Grant was sustained as the president of the church. During his 26-and-a-half-year administration, the church's second longest, church members grew familiar with the hardy pioneer themes of President Grant's leadership. Remember, many Mormon fundamentalists believe that there is a difference between the president of the church and the president of the priesthood. And again, this is going to come in with the Centennial Park story. President of the church is different than the president of the priesthood. And there is a good argument to say that Joseph Smith acted as both most of the time, and Brigham Young and John Taylor certainly did as well, even though Brigham Young said otherwise. It's said that Wilford Woodruff acted as president of the church, but because he rejected some of the doctrines that were carried by others on the priesthood work, that he wasn't considered the president of both. And by the time Heber J. Grant had these positions, they were said to be completely separate. So to many polygamists and fundamentalists, this doesn't mean that um, Grant didn't necessarily have authority to run the day-to-day operations of the church. He just didn't have the authority to run the priesthood ordinances because they were separate offices that had separate functions. For many years, like the AUB church, they were, and we talked about this, they were one that accepted the authorities of the LDS prophets as sort of seers and revelators, but they considered themselves heirs of the priesthood work, like celestial marriage. And But then, of course, when the priesthood ban happened, that changed a lot of things. And remember, 1890, Wilford gives, Wilford Woodruff gives the initial manifesto, but when he does that, even though he does that, Uh, Members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles continued to enter into or solemnize polygamous marriages. Then President Joseph F. Smith issued the Second Manifesto near the beginning of the Reed-Smoot hearings in 1904, and um, it was announced at General Conference. So the Second Manifesto, it was held on April 6, 1904. In this public meeting, Smith announced that he would like to read an official statement that he had prepared so that his words would, quote, not be understood or misquoted. Smith read, quote, Inasmuch as there are numerous reports in, cir- in circulation that plural marriages have been entered into, contrary to the official declaration of President Woodruff on September 24, 1890, commonly called the Manifesto, which was issued by President Woodruff and adopted by the Church at its general conference October 6, 1890, which forbade any marriages violative of the law of the land, I, Joseph F. Smith, President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, hereby affirm and declare that no such marriages have been solemnized with the sanction, consent, or knowledge of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I hereby announce that all such marriages are prohibited, and if any officer or member of the Church shall assume to solemnize or enter into any marriage, he will be deemed in transgression against the Church, and will be liable to be dealt with according to the rules and regulations thereof, and excommunicated therefrom. Joseph F. Smith, President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. End quote. And then, of course, Francis Lyman, who was the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, gets up, presents a resolution of the endorsement, which was seconded by B.H. Roberts and accepted unanimously by those in attendance in the conference. I feel like that that's important to tell you because Joseph F. Smith, calling himself the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Francis Lyman as the president 
of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, this is where we really start to see why these terms matter to people, especially if you're a Mormon fundamentalist. You're going to interpret what they say different and have different weight on what is being said. And again, we'll be talking about all of this later. Now, remember, a number of church leaders were opposed to the enforcement of the Second Manifesto, including Apostles John W. Taylor, who was John Taylor's son, and Matthias F. Cowley. And they opposed it so much that they were eventually expelled from the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in 1906. And then in 1911, John W. Taylor was excommunicated for continuing his opposition. Francis Lyman was put in charge of a committee to investigate plural marriages since the Second Manifesto that excommunicated people who would be involved in such practices. As the church began to excommunicate those who continued into plural marriages, some of those individuals start the Mormon fundamentalist movement. And many, many believed and were motivated by the belief that the church didn't have a right to ban plural marriage, which they saw as an eternal commandment. Because remember, we do have quotes of people saying it is required for your salvation. Unlike the 1890 manifesto, the LDS church has never canonized the second manifesto. But um, it does sort of remain an accurate description of how the church has enforced it since then. When Grant was installed as president of the church, he was still considered by polygamists to believe that the, mani the manifesto was just some sort of political expedient. Because remember, Grant was a polygamist himself. During his administration, as time went on, he began to slowly work to enforce the manifesto. And by, ni by 1935, he himself was authorizing excommunications and having everyone sign a loyalty pledge. Here is what Claude Colley would say on the matter, quote, The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or mainstream Mormon church has abandoned or severely modified many of the things, including the practice of plural marriage, the practice of communal living called the United Order, the wearing of the garments as outlined by Joseph Smith, and the preservation of original ordinances re recorded by Brigham Young from those taught by Joseph Smith people in Centennial Park oh, by Joseph Smith people in Centennial Park Arizona are striving to preserve plural marriage and many other from tenets from Joseph Smith including the authority he received to perform ordinances most other organizations have perverted or abandoned those things these things the creation of Centennial Park is an outcome of events that have occurred over nearly 130 years. The community strives to function in the original tradition of the Mormon fundamentalist movement that began in 1886. That era marked the height of Congress's movement against the LDS Church over the Church's practice of plural marriage. Through the years, these offshoots from the movement's original group of people have occurred, many of them claiming to be the genuine movement. We believe that the practices of Centennial Park are more true to the original movement than any of these other groups, including the FLDS, or Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which, during the leadership of Warren Jeffs, became the most prominent of these offshoots represented in the media. The intent of gathering in Centennial Park is to preserve and practice the principles established by Joseph Smith when he originated the LDS Church, end quote. And from that... Sorry to take so long to talk, but I'm going to let you hear the interview that Claude and I had. Okay, hi Claude. Thank you so much for giving us, uh, for taking the time to let us interview you today. Oh, you're very welcome. So tell us about who you are and uh, why I'm talking to you today. Okay, 
Well, I uh, I was born in Ogden, Utah, in 1937, and, uh, and my mother, my father died when I was about six months old. So my mother was a single mother, and in the course of of the years following up to about 1944, uh, she was brought into contact with the fundamentalist movement by her mother, who was a woolly. She was a woolly. And uh, she ended up marrying into it and brought me to Salt Lake when I was seven years old, and that's how I got connected with the with fundamentalist Mormonism. And so from that time, I have been part of what we, you know, what we call the work. They call it the work. And so I have lived through a lot of the history myself. And uh, I went through school, graduated from Olympus High School, and went to the University of Utah, and I earned a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. And then uh, J.M. Hammond asked me if I'd come down to uh, Colorado City and teach in the academy when he started the Colorado City Academy. So uh, I moved. I'd spent a year in graduate school prior to that, and I moved down to Colorado City at that time. So that was about 1960 or it's about 1960. And are you active in your church today? Yes. Okay, so um, when you moved down to Colorado City, the FLDS and Centennial Park hadn't yet split, correct? That's right. So what were you guys calling yourself at the time? Uh, pardon me? What were what What did you call the church at the time? Did you just call it the work? It just, yeah, it was the work. Because FLDS incorporated, I think, in the 80s. Yes, so. the 80s or 90s. I, uh, I wasn't, you know... Uh, well versed in what was going on at that time because by that time I w- was out of their domain. But that's true. The the FLDS uh, incorporated sometime around 1990 or a little before or after. Well, the reason I called you is because we're talking about, the, for this project, we're talking about the history of the groups. And uh, I was told you're the guy to talk to about the history of Centennial Park. Now, most of my listeners would know we, we've covered the history of the FLDS and the Woolies and how we get up to that. But what I'm really interested in is what happened to cause the split and what has happened since the split. So would you be willing to sort of tell us that story? Sure. It goes back, the, the, the split goes back to the early 1970s, I think. And of course, the movement wasn't very apparent at that time. I became a little unsettled in mind about 1972 because I thought that uh, that some of the people in the community were going to be trying to control my life, <laughs> and I was worried about that. And as things progressed, there arose a movement which essentially, as far as my experience goes, and being acquainted with the people, I mean, you know, I lived in the community, I know the people. I heard what they said publicly. I didn't uh, get in on any private conversations. I heard, I've heard various stories about what what happened, but from my perspective, 
the movement was a movement to take control of the community, Colorado City. Of course, that committee more or less was Brother Johnson's community. I mean, whatever he said pretty well went. But uh, he was he was getting older, and uh, he got sick, and, and he was out of the public eye for about five years. During that time, people that gathered close around him more or less took charge of his life. That is to say, it was hard to get in to see him unless you were a certain person that they approved of, and they were afraid that uh, he, when he died, the leadership would go to, to Brother Hammond, J.M. Hammond, and they didn't want that to happen. And so they entered into a conspiracy to take Brother Hammond down and anybody that was with him. And they began to circulate stories about certain members uh, of the priesthood council. Brother Musser in particular, who wasn't in the community, he, he resided in Salt Lake, uh, but they they went around. They never came around to me because they knew where I stood and I wasn't on their side. So, uh, but they went around and told stories about Brother Musser and they uh, misrepresented to Brother Johnson what had been said in public meetings by these brethren, trying to cast a slant on it that made him think they were working against him. And the whole effort was to see to it that they got control of the community instead of Brother Hammond when Brother Johnson died. Sorry, can I interrupt and ask a question? So I'm I'm LDS, and so I'm still kind of unclear in all my research. When we talk about Brother Johnson and the Priesthood Council, can you explain to me a little bit more about how the leadership worked? Because I'm so used to the, I guess, you, you know, they call it the one-man rule now, but in the LDS church, we have the prophet, and then we have the Quorum of the Twelve. How does that work? Was Leroy Johnson sort of the prophet, or was it still a sort of consensus model? Does that make sense, what I'm asking? Well, yeah. The the uh, In the restoration of the gospel, let me put it this way, in the restoration of the gospel, the way God did, put it out through Joseph Smith, and the way he organized things, was that he organized the priesthood in quorums. They have quorums. Uh, and he... He said that when the quorum meets and they have the Spirit of God and they're all united, they're all united on a matter. That's the word of the Lord. And the the uh, genius behind that is that it doesn't go to any one man uh, because when the power is in the hands of one man, he tends to become corrupted unless he's got a sterling character. Now, Brother Johnson had a sterling character. And people looked to him and built him up, and they made him into this one man. But that was that was a political movement that went through the 1980s, and the whole effort was to to push him up, and he became the one man. And they created this one man doctrine, which had never been part of the work before that. It had always been the priesthood council acting as a quorum, and of course they have a president who is the president of the priesthood. And uh, and he's regarded like the president of the church as a prophet and seer and revelator. And so the standard procedure is when that man dies, the next man in line, according to uh, seniority in the council, when they were ordained, automatically becomes the president. 
and looking at Brother Johnson, and he, he was very sick and wasn't going to live forever. When he died, Brother Hammond was the next one in line, and he would have been in, in charge as president of the council. And uh, the, the town fathers in Colorado City didn't want to come under his rule. And so they created a conspiracy to take Brother Hammond down and anybody that's, that was with him. And what happened in the dynamics within the priesthood council during these years was that as it fell out, Brother Musser, Brother Hammond, and Brother Helme A. Timpson were on one side, and Rule and Jeffs aligned with with the people that were manipulating Brother Johnson. And that made a rift in the council. This is the only time in the history of the work where uh, succession succession problem resulted in a rift in the priesthood council. Prior to that, when succession problems arose, the council was united. And uh, and that's what happened in the case of, of the all-redites, or the, what they call United Apostolic Brethren today is what they call them. Uh, in that case, Ruin Allred was the interloper, and the council was united in their stand, and there's a whole story behind that. I'm sure you've heard their side. Yeah, we've covered we've covered that sort of history about the Allred group and, and all that. And and go ahead. In this succession problem, the the real difference between this one and others is that the council was divided. And then Brother Messer died, and so that left Brother Hammond, Brother Timpson together and brother Jess and brother Johnson and that was the that was the basis of the split and uh, the people that were trying to manipulate things and this is just purely a political move they just wanted control of the Colorado city and didn't want it to fall in brother Hammond's hands and so they began to uh exclude people from Coming to a priesthood meeting, for example, I was one of those. I came to priesthood meeting, and they tried to bar me at the door. And uh, the reason they had to bar me wasn't a sound reason, so I got to get in. But the next month when I came, they just, without any reason at all, wouldn't allow me to go in. And uh, they had a they had a sentinel at the door. It was Nephi Barlow, and uh, so. The people that were excluded in that way uh, aligned themselves with Brother Hammond and Brother Timpson and began meeting separately. And that's how the split uh, appeared when it became overt. But that wasn't until the middle 80s or the early 80s. And uh, what happened was in Colorado City, the young men growing up that were that were uh, making families, getting married, needed a house to live. Uh, the town fathers in Colorado City wouldn't wouldn't grant. It was controlled by the United Effort Plan. They wouldn't grant a lot to any of the young men that they didn't want to do, uh, that they wanted to exclude. And so Brother Hammond and Brother Timpson decided that that w- they needed to get a piece of land where these young men could settle, so they wouldn't flee the area and uh, they bought this piece of property where Centennial Park is and then began that development. So that's how Centennial Park came about. 
That's fascinating. I have a question about that. So I, I interviewed Benjamin Bisline at his care center in Hurricane last, last weekend. And he was telling me that, you know, of course he probably has very different opinions on Marion Hammond than you do, but he was saying that one of the things that Marion Hammond instituted was the, uh, he didn't call it arranged marriages. I'm trying to think of the term that he used. Um, but he said that it was in part because before that point, and we're talking, you know, early when all of this conflict is still happening with, with, uh, you know, both of the leaders, Leroy Johnson and Marion Hammond, he said that it was because a lot of the men were starting to, um, marry younger and younger and younger and they were running out of women. What is your take on that? Well, it's one of the problems. It's one of the problems with an inbred polygamous community. If you're going to practice polygamy and you don't have people coming in from the outside, it does become a problem. Uh, I wouldn't say that at that time it was a horrendous problem, but uh, it's something you might see on the horizon. Uh, but uh, I don't think that it's reasonable to uh, to say that Brother Hammond is the one that instituted arranged marriages, because that's just plain not true. Well, to be fair, I, I could have been, I might be fuzzy on my timeline, so I might be conflating a, a bunch of things. Well, there were there were marriages assigned from Brother Barlow's day. You know, I can name names, <laughs> but uh, when the when there were uh, people or a subgroup of the people that were willing to do that, the the brethren did that, and uh, Brother Johnson performed many marriages that way, and so did Brother Hammond and the other brethren, and they began to teach that as a doctrine way before the split. When I was still living in Salt Lake, uh, they organized what they called the firesides up there. I don't know how much they did in, in Short Creek, but in Salt Lake they did. And I was, uh, I was about 19 years old at the time, 18, 19. And, uh, they organized these firesides, which were intended to teach the young people this proposition of, of, uh, what they call placement marriage. And Bill Draper and uh, Clarence Wayman were assigned to teach that class. Now, I attended those firesides, so I know what they taught. And uh, that was instituted by the priesthood council at that time. So that's fascinating. Tell me, tell me how you responded as a 19-year-old boy to this. Was it, was it something new and shocking? Was it exciting? How did you, how did you respond? Uh, well, I, I pretty much accepted, uh, what they were teaching and, and was committed to it, or the way they taught it. And what they taught was that the young men shouldn't be courting the girls, because for all they know, they would be fooling around with somebody else's wife, you know, a girl that was going to be somebody else's wife. And they taught us not to, not to do anything to attract the affections of, of the girls. And I took that very seriously and guided my life along those lines. 
my lifeline is a little different than the typical child growing up in the work at that time because because I didn't associate a lot with the people my age in the group and I thought they were immature and I <laughs> and I went on with my career to go to the university and I was pretty much alone in doing that and I had been prior to that time too as far as socially goes because when I was 11 years old I started uh, going to work caddying on the golf course and and I was away from all the activities of the family let alone the group you know because when school wasn't in session, I was up there. Uh, weekends were the best time to earn money. And then in the summer, I was up there, and I was kind of removed from everything. I have a, I have a million questions, but I'm, if we go back to the timeline, I, I'm curious because in Sanjeev Bhattacharya's book, he, he talks about Centennial Park, actually with fondness. That was one of the few groups that he was very fond of. But he does talk about how the split, you know, when the split occurs, how it was very difficult on families, and in my mind, when you say that color or uh, Centennial Park was sort of built for these young men, I'm picturing sort of this this rough miners' town. Can you kind of tell me what it looked like and how how it changed and how this split really affected people? Uh, well, uh, it was a raw piece of ground, and. Uh, I sat down. I was I was asked to sit down with a planning a group that planned the community out, and, and we made a kind of a map of the community and what the lots would be and so on. There was a lot of uh, a lot of discussion among people and feelings and so forth, but the land was purchased by contributions made from the members, and there was a, a trust organized called the Deseret Land and Trust to uh, hold that property which was purchased that way and to manage it. And they're the ones that, once we had a plan of what the the developed lots were going to be, assigned lots to people. That is to say, they allowed people to put their name on a lot. And uh, once that happened, there were, there were people who thought they that they owned the lot, which they didn't. The Deseret Land and Trust owned the ground. But since their name was on a lot, if, if they needed a lot, they'd come out and they started building houses on the lot. Uh, the first person to come out, put up a, a trailer on the lot, was, uh, was uh, Norman Hammond, I think. And uh, then gradually people came out and began to build houses. Well, this was not according to the laws of Mojave County. Yeah, and Mojave County regarded that land as one big piece of land, which it was, and their rules for dividing it were based on if you wanted to have lots, you had to have a subdivision approved by the county. And we spent 25 years trying to get that or make that a reality. And in the meantime, people would come up and come out and build houses, and the county was ready to put a red tag on everything that was going on out there. Uh, so the Deseret Land and Trust worked to try and and get a subdivision going and develop it so people could actually own their lots. And today it's about three-fourths done and approved by the county, and we're working on the last piece. So when when the split happens, um, 
was it all of a sudden a big exodus from, you know, Sh- Short Creek or Colorado City? Where Did everybody move to Centennial Park or was it gradual? How did that happen? No, it was gradual. People stayed in Colorado City. Uh, they just went to meetings in different places. There were, you know, two different groups. Uh, there was no other place to go. And uh, the United Effort Plan Trust had put on the list of their beneficiaries all the people that were living in lots in Colorado City. So you were a beneficiary of the trust. And they had to try and do something to, if they wanted to kick you off, <laughs> to do that, that would be um, a legal way to do it. And so people were still living in the houses they had in Colorado City until they got one built in Centennial Park. My house is still in Colorado City, and I've lived in it all this time. So what is that like? Because right now the FLDS, they're not even allowed to associate with apostates. And so do they consider you apostates? Oh, yeah. So how does what is that like? Well, there there's a somewhat of a history connected with with that but i come and go and mind my business and i they don't talk to me so i don't talk to them and <laughs> that's what that's what it's like i don't know what's going on in the community at large because they don't talk to me what about family members when the split happened i imagine that there were certain wives of husbands and sisters and brothers and all people sort of split on this what was that like the situation is that the FLDS people do not allow their members to talk to anybody outside of their society, even family members, or visit with them or go and see them. Or they just don't allow that. And, and so those people are divorced from their family. Uh, they're brothers and sisters on both sides and fathers and sons and daughters and mothers and the whole thing where people living in Centennial Park don't get permission to visit their father or their siblings. Now, the other way around, it isn't that way. Anybody, you know, Centennial Park doesn't have that kind of an arrangement. That's what I was going to ask you is, how do you guys view the FLDS? Are they considered apostates in your group? Uh, Yeah, sure. But you don't you don't have restrictions against associating with apostates. No, no, we don't, and we don't use that's a harsh term. We say they've they have strayed from. Well, here's the here's the uh, crux of the whole matter between all of these polygamous groups. The issue is who has authority to administer the ordinances of the gospel. And, of course, the Centennial Park, we claim we have, and we have the lineage of that authority coming from Joseph Smith all the way down through the Woolies and so forth to the present day. But these other these other groups, they don't particularly want to talk about that issue. Uh, their their uh, foundation isn't as solid as ours is. What happened in Colorado City after the split was uh, Brother Jess was there, and he administered to those people till he died. After that, there was no successor. Uh, Warren Jeffs never had any authority to to become president of the priesthood or even a member of the priesthood council. 
Right. He was just saying he was working through his father. Yeah, that's right. And he pretended to speak for his father, and, and that was all a bunch of nonsense. How did you guys view all of that? How What was Centennial Park thinking when, you know, uh, there was the raid in Texas? And um, were you guys following that? I imagine it shook up Colorado City, so it would have affected your neighbors. Oh, yeah. I You know... Uh, I thought what the state of Texas did to that community over there was terrible. I think they overstepped the bounds of what they should have been allowed to do. Uh, but then it wasn't, you know, there's a precedent for that because what they did to David Koresh and his society was in some ways worse. I don't think we're in the bounds of propriety in the way they dealt with that community, and I was very upset about it. Yeah, that one was a that one was a really controversial raid and upsetting and sort of traumatic to a lot of children. Maybe that's something I, I want to talk about Centennial Park beliefs. But before I do that, can we sort of talk about this bias and maybe a prejudice against polygamists, especially amongst LDS? I I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I grew up as an LDS girl being taught that you know fundamentalists were wrong and bad and weird and different. And doing the history, it's been sort of shocking to find out how much in common we really have and what the real story was. And But I still find uh, prejudices these these days still within me sometimes to other, you know, like it's you guys and us and we're the normal ones and you're not, you know, and it, it's still, those still creep up. So can you talk about maybe some of the discrimination that you felt, um, you know, living plural marriage or being part of a polygamous group? Yeah, when I was when I was a child growing up, of course I was I was in Salt Lake City, and I went through the Salt Lake City Public Schools and then the Granite School District when I went to Olympus High School. And the environment was there that uh, you had to be very careful about what you said and and not reveal any of your family relations to anybody. I had friends, but I never talked about my family. And I basically never invited them to my house or anything like that because there was a real fear the church and the authorities of the law would arrest your father and put him in jail. And they had done that in 1944 there in Salt Lake. And so uh, I was, in that respect, I was isolated from the you know, society of my peers, in all other ways, I was, you know, a member. I mean, they just didn't know that I was a polygamous child. And I had a very active uh, career in, in the high school years. I went to South High my sophomore year and then Olympus High my junior and senior year and was on the debate team. And I performed in every theatrical performance Olympus High did while I was there. And... Uh, <laughs> But I couldn't talk about my family. And uh, so you had that hanging over you all the time. What would have happened if you would have talked about it or if uh, it would have come out? Because I've talked to some people who maybe went to BYU and they found out that the roommate was a fundamentalist or something like that. Did that ever happen to you? No. Nobody ever, ever really knew that I was. And did you date LDS girls or non-LDS girls? I did in a very, very minimal way. I went to a junior prom and 
ask a girl out. I had a friend that was was a girl in high school, that, but uh, we we went out a time or two, but it was very minimal because of who I was and because uh, I was being taught by my mother. <laughs> to leave the girls of the out in the world alone, you know, there's a lot of pressure on me from her to do that. So I did very little, but I had friends in in high school. Did do are you still in contact with those friends? Do they know about your religion? The circle, the circle of boys that I associated with, uh, I have lost contact with all of them. And the one that I was closest to, I cannot find where he is. Now, one of the others, I had, I had, uh, contact after the university. We all went to the university together, uh, with him and he got married and I met his wife and, uh, we had some, uh, conversations after graduation from the university years after. He's the only one that I had any contact after school time with. Interesting. So, um, do you are you comfortable telling us about how you sort of got back into the community and went back to Colorado City? Because I really wanted to sort of transition into um, where Centennial Park is now. So, do you want to tell us about what happened when you left the university? Well, I spent a year in graduate school, and then I left the university and came to Colorado City uh, to be on the faculty of the Colorado City Academy, and I and I did that for five years, and then I went back to university uh, to earn my doctor's degree, and that took three years, and graduated in 1968, and uh, then I came back and and taught in the academy. So all told, I taught in the academy for 12 years. And then the, the uh, beginnings of this split happened, and the people that were involved in it went after me, and I ended up getting kicked out of the community and went back to Salt Lake and was there until 2006. Now, I kept my family in Colorado City. Brother Johnson told me that I could keep my family there if I wanted, which I thought was the best thing to do. And so I, he said I could come and visit him, which I did. And I spent two weekends every month in Colorado City. And, and then I was involved in business activities in Salt Lake, where I worked the rest of the time. So would that be called being corrected? Were you being corrected, or is that a more recent construction? No, that, recent those kind of terms came up after the FLDS. Okay. So you... You eventually moved down to Colorado City with your family. Um, do you want to tell us uh, tell us about Colorado City being in Centennial Park? Tell us about Centennial Park. Centennial Park, for our listeners, is a city, and it's also a religion, correct? Yeah. I, well, it's not a religion. About 1990 or 1991... We did organize a corporation, nonprofit corporation. We called it the Work of Jesus Christ. And the main reason for doing that, or the compelling reason for doing that, was at that time uh, Alma A. Timpson was 
the the uh, head of the group and Brother Hammond had died, and he was collecting tithing and he was putting it in an account. And somebody informed him that the IRS would regard that as personal income to him, and it's you know more money than he didn't even have a job at that time. He was an old man, he's very old in his eighties. Uh, so we organized this nonprofit corporation called the Work of Jesus Christ, and the, and the priesthood council is the board of directors of that organization, so that the tithing could go to a nonprofit and and we could get tax exempt status. And so that's what that's what we are today is the work. We call it the work for short. It's always been called the work. And so the official name is the work of Jesus Christ, and then we just refer to it as work like we always have. Now, to an outsider, I think Mormonism gets, you know, critiqued all the time anyway for being Christian. But I think to an outsider to hear it called the work of Jesus Christ and know that it's a polygamy-based group is one of its fundamental doctrines, how does that tie in with Jesus Christ? How would you tell that, explain that to an outsider? Well, it, it's it's exactly the same as you would try to explain as a Mormon to people who are non-Mormons, and they think that, that the Mormon religion is not a Christian religion, but it's based on uh, it's based on the proposition that Jesus Christ came into the world as the Son of God and was cru- crucified as an atonement, and that's the basic principle that all the Christian religions. Uh, ascribe to, and it's no different for Mormons. It's no different for the fundamentalist Mormons. It's the same proposition. And then beyond that, uh, what we what we claim that we're doing is we're maintaining the principles that Joseph Smith taught and restored. Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, has drifted away from that. They abandoned polygamy. They changed the ordinances in the temple and the garments uh, that they put on their members when they go through their endowment, and many other things they've changed. Do you think the LDS has some truth? I mean, are we still? I guess is are the LDS members? Are we considered um, condemned, or maybe just not a higher degree? Because I know with every group, it's sort of different. Yeah, well, I can tell you my feeling about the Mormon Church. I, first of all, and this is what we've always been taught over the years, because the the uh, uh, council priesthood council came out of the church in those days through the 1940s and 50s. They were devout members of the church, but they got excommunicated because they were either interested in or living polygamy, and they taught that uh, this is the church that was organized by Joseph Smith by revelation from God, and and it's it's his church. And they didn't feel like that they should organize any church different from that. And their theory was that someday that church would be set in order according to the uh, doctrines of the restoration that Joseph Smith taught and advocated. So when you guys say it's out of order, that is what you mean, that it got out of order again, it can be set in order. Does that mean that any, like, could that happen again? Is it, is it something, is it, is there an issue of infallibility, fallibility, I guess, with leaders? Uh, yeah, there is, there is an issue and it goes back to uh, this 
central issue that people don't want to talk about, which is the authority from God to administer the ordinances of the gospel. And the division with the with the LDS Church came uh, when Heber J. Grant became president of the church. Up to that time, the presidents of church, the presidents of the church, had acted under the direction of the president of priesthood, who was John Woolley in those early days, uh, up through the life of Joseph F. Smith. But Heber J. Grant did not look to that authority. And he didn't take his office as president of the church by by that authority. Yeah, we're going to be talking about this on our episode coming up um, after we cover your group. We're going to go back into, uh, I think we've made it as far as Woodruff, so we're going to be talking about Heber J. Grant. So um, if you want to share more thoughts on that, you're, you're absolutely welcome to. I don't think you'll offend any of our listeners. Okay. We recognize in the history of the church the existence of a priesthood council almost from the very beginning. Uh, this issue is treated by Joseph W. Musser in his pamphlet, A Priesthood Issue. I don't know whether you've read that or not, but that would give the story. Yeah, I have. I have. Okay. So, uh, so by that analysis, there, has, there had always been a priesthood council. Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery got the authority from Peter, James, and John. That authority uh, preceded the organization of the Quorum of Twelve. Uh, And it preceded the organization of the church. Joseph Smith didn't act until he had authority to act. And that authority is something different from the apostleship in the church and the apostleship of the Twelve, obviously, because... There was there was Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer was one, and others that Joseph Smith gave that authority to. He didn't he didn't act alone. One of the first things he did after receiving the priesthood from Peter, James, and John is bring David Whitmer in and give it to him. There was no church organization at that time, so the church was organized by the power of the priesthood, by the authority of the priesthood. That so makes the priesthood superior to and outside of the church. The church is that, that there can't be any priesthood outside the church, but historically that's just not true. This is, a, this is an issue that's confusing for LDS Mormons because, you know, with the secession crisis from Joseph to Brigham, uh, the way that we contextualize it is really confusing to modern LDS people because we recognize Brigham as a prophet, but the way he sort of presented it to the council at the time was it was more of a council. Do you guys do a reading of history that way, that Brigham uh, was just carrying on what Joseph wanted, that it was a reading, like, I mean, sorry, that it was just a council, and you, you're continuing to do that today? Yes. Do you want to tell us about your leadership structure? Because it's very consensus-based, right? Uh, yes, it is consensus-based. Uh, the uh, The priesthood council meets, and they go over the affairs of the of the uh, group and and uh, they counsel people and you know make decisions about what's going to be done and they do that as a group always have and um i've heard this tell that this is one of the strengths of centennial park I, as a full full disclosure i have dear dear friends of mine that are centennial park members and um by all accounts, like they are just healthy, well-adjusted people, you know, not, not what people think of when they think of some of the Mormon fundamentalists, especially those maybe 
that are associated in any way with the FLDS. And I've heard them say that it's because the council um, allows for there to be less corruption. What is your take on that? I agree with that view. And in fact, I, I say this. Uh, this is how God deals with his children. Uh, he does it through priesthood quorums and from top to bottom, including the priesthood council, which is over all of his affairs in the earth. Uh, it's a quorum. And so that prevents any one man from uh, taking power into himself. And and so it kind of mitigates against corruption. Uh, best example is what happened in Colorado City. They started this one-man thing and became... It was the thrust of their movement to take control of the community through Brother Johnson, making him the one man. And they and they got so converted to that idea that they ended up coming uh, uh, under a corrupt individual, Warren Jess, uh, who's in jail, rightfully so, because of what he's done. And they were so committed to the one man that what his edicts were, they felt like they had to obey or their salvation was at stake. And that's not the way God's kingdom operates. So if you were in Centennial Park and you had a disagreement, say, with the with the council, is there a mechanism for average members to express dissent in any way? Well, they can express their opinion. Uh, there is a history behind that in the... Uh, if you if you go back through the history of the fundamentalist movement in the days of the Woolies, it was on the underground. But when John Y. Barlow became president of the priesthood, many many people were being excommunicated from the church for believing in or practicing what they call the fullness of the gospel, which includes plural marriage. And so there came to be uh, a congregation gathering around the the brethren at that time. And uh, the scenario was that people were coming out of the church and associating themselves with the group, and they were men who had been trained in the church, and they thought they knew a lot of things that <laughs> Lauren Woolley had kind of set straight with the brethren when he taught them. He, he gathered them around before he died for several months, and he told them, everything you've learned in the church, you've got to put on the side, and I'm going to teach you the truth. And, but they had men coming in who thought they could set the brethren straight and they wanted to argue. And there was a concerted effort made by the brethren to tell the the elders that contention was not part of God's plan and they, they didn't want to engage in contention. And that's kind of been a rule uh, from that time going forward. How does the Centennial Park deal with dissent, though? I mean, do you guys do excommunication? Do you, I mean... No, we don't. No excommunication at all? No. It, so there's nothing There's nothing bad enough to risk that? I mean, we're talking murder or, any, you know, other terrible criminal acts. Well, if you read the Doctrine and Covenants, it's pretty plain what the Lord tells the people there. He says... And this is the reality of the same in the church. The church has the power to excommunicate people from their organization, and that's as far as it goes. After that, the law of the land will handle them, and that's and that's what you should do according to the doctrine and covenants. You turn them over to the to the authorities and let them 
take their course as far as breaking laws and so forth goes. And so that the jurisdiction of the church only pertains to the ecclesiastical rules of the church, and, and the church has the right to excommunicate people that, that are not consonant with that. That's what the LDS church has done once they abandon polygamy. And they certainly have that prerogative. Uh, so what we try to do is is let the law of the land take its course in the case of criminal action. And and that includes the whole gamut of civil affairs. With the ecclesiastical affairs, uh, the work has never had a formal organization like the church to make people a part of and excommunicate from, and so we leave that up to their conscience. Brother Johnson used to say uh, he felt like people who were dissenters would get discouraged and leave, and that was his approach. Let them get discouraged and go their way, and many people do, and they're free to go or free to come. We we don't... So this is similar to the FLDS, too, except for their punishments are very extreme, do you guys do you have penalties like that? Is I mean, do you lose something if you're if you sin? No, no, we don't. It's a matter of conscience, mostly, basically. So, what would be the like? Is it the repentance process? Is what we call it in the LDS Church? Is there something similar if you let's say let's say uh, someone has an affair on their spouse? What would how would that be handled? Yes, well. Uh, Let's take a hypothetical here. If uh, if a uh, man has a wife and and he engages in uh, sexual intercourse outside of that marriage, which is against the it's against the law of God, uh, we advocate that the the ceiling that he had has been violated by that action, and his wife his wife has every right to leave him. And he has the opportunity to repent. And so if that issue comes before the uh, priesthood council, we engage in in conversations over it and try to find out what his desires are. And uh, the outcome of that will be depending on, you know, if he's repentant and, and wants to continue with the work. Uh, his wife still doesn't have to stay with him. It's up to her. Usually they decide to stay with him. I don't know. You understand women better than I do. <laughs> Hopefully. Then the the outcome would be if he wanted to stay with the work, he would have to be rebaptized, and and he would have to uh, go through whatever we uh, we decide as a as a council, a priesthood council decides that he would do. Uh, if if we thought he should have a waiting period before he received the priesthood again because coming through a rebaptism he'd have to be ordained to the priesthood again uh, have to have it conferred upon him again and we could do that uh, when when the time was appropriate and he's not admitted to priesthood meetings if he's not a priesthood bearer and he would have to go through a period then according to the judgment of the brethren whether he was ready to receive the priesthood or not if he didn't want to do that, we would encourage his wife to stay with the work and let him go. Okay. You talked about baptism, rebaptism. What is baptism? Um, 
look like in the Centennial Park, you know, in LDS, we do it at eight and uh, we don't do rebaptisms unless you're excommunicated. But talk to us about baptism in Centennial Park. Well, baptism is exactly like it is in the LDS church. Uh, a rebaptism is a little different and uh, uh, the wording of the ordinance goes much along the same lines, but there's some added words that pertain to uh, being restored to your former condition, your former blessings, uh, and and for the remission of your sins. So the language is a little different, but the ordinance has worked out exactly the same way as it is in the LDS Church. What about your ceilings? What does a Centennial Park uh, eternal ceiling look like? Uh, well, the the uh, procedure is the same as would be in the, the temples of the church, and as far as I'm, as far as I know, the wording of the ordinance is the same. Uh, that is published in uh, at least two places. It's in the Truth Magazine, I think, twentieth volume, and it's in the A Leaf in Review by uh, B. Harvey Allred. The wording of the ordinance. And I think it's the same as what would would be said in the temple with it's the same procedure. Now, do you guys have an endowment house? Uh, yeah, we we have a facility that we can use to do endowments, have done, but on a very limited basis. And there's now, a historical connection with that in my mind. I look at the history of the church. And I see what they did in the Nauvoo Temple in 1845 and 46. And they were just running people through, running people through. And and people walked right out of that temple and revealed to the world their experience as best they could remember it, which they weren't supposed to do. And the people developed the idea that their salvation, they were saved and exalted by going through that ordinance, which is not correct. And I think they had the wrong idea. And my feeling is that the endowment should be more exclusive than that. Uh, and it isn't just a matter of going through and going through. Now, with the church, it is. You have to, you know, you have to get a temple recommend. And, uh, and we don't have any formal system for that like the church does, but it's still by select, you know, selection. Okay. Um, one of the things, of course, I would have to ask for this series, since we're talking about polygamy, is plural marriage. So often polygamy gets associated with abuse. And I've been trying to tell my listeners that the, you know, polygamy doesn't cause abuse, but because it's been illegal, it's prevented people from reporting abuse. And that's, you know, that's part of the problems with having underground cultures. Do you want to talk about how Centennial Park has dealt with some of these um, allegations of the polygamous and underage marriages and forced marriages and human trafficking and that kind of stuff. Yes, I can talk about that. Okay, first of all, there aren't any forced marriages. And there aren't any underage marriages. We believe in abiding by the law and if the law puts restrictions on the age for marriage, then we're not gonna we're not gonna do underage marriages. Uh so we don't do that. And and the the girl always has the option to say no if she doesn't want to proceed in a particular marriage that might be recommended for her. What is the consequence if she says no? Is there is there a stigma attached with that? 
Well, it depends on the individual case and how she has behaved. Uh, but generally what happens is that she, if she has a preference, we can go with that preference, or if she doesn't, we can find somebody else that she's more willing to marry. Uh, but, you know, they, people get together so often, it's a, it's a, it's a preference of hers and maybe of the, of the man's as well, or the boy's as well, uh, in a lot of cases, and we just, we just put the approval of the brethren on that and give them this ceiling. So let me let me explain how I understand it, and you tell me if I've gotten this, if I've gotten anything wrong. So how I understand it is um, a girl can, you know, like find someone that she's interested in, and he could be married or, or not. He could already have a wife. And she goes to the priesthood council to get permission, and they sort of call him in and give him a calling. And I've heard rumors and I'm not quite sure, Claire, on this, that the, that the men really can't say no. I mean, they can because it's a free country, but there's a lot of pressure for them to take this on whether they're interested in this or not. Is that correct? So let me, let me explain how I understand it, and you tell me if I've gotten this, if I've gotten anything wrong. So how I understand it is um, a girl can, you know, like find someone that she's interested in, and he could be married or, or not. He could already have a wife. And she goes to the priesthood council to get permission, and they sort of call him in and give him a calling. And I've heard rumors, and I'm not quite sure, Claire, on this, that the, that the men really can't say no. I mean, they can because it's a free country, but there's a lot of pressure for them to take this on, whether they're interested in this or not. Is that correct? That's Yeah, that's my feeling. I, it, it's like this. The, a man who bears the priesthood has certain obligations and responsibilities, and those set him apart from the rest of the world. And if he's conscientious and serious about bearing his priesthood, then uh, a, a proposed marriage that he turns down is going to be to his condemnation. You can look right in the 132nd section and read that. Now, what about the the wife that he's already married to if if a young girl you know has an interest in a in a man young girl if a woman has an interest in a man and he's already married does does the wife or do the children do any of them have a say in how this goes down well again you can look in the 132nd section and there's some wording in there specifically almost with regard to Emma Smith and her acceptance or not non-acceptance of this principle and what the 132nd section says is that if she doesn't agree with it, the man is still justified in going ahead. Now, there's a there's a uh, an ordinance called the Law of Sarah, in which the the wife or the wives of the man that he already has witness their willingness to accept this new member in the family, and that's an ordinance which is administered when the sealing is done. So that's interesting. I've never heard it. Described as an ordinance, so is it is it always accompanied with the ceiling, or just sometimes? Is it just like a special, additional ordinance? No, it it should always accompany the ceiling. Generally, uh, if the question is put to the man, "Do you want to do this?" and he'll say that he does, it's something that's desirable to do. Uh, and then, and then the uh, the wife that he already has, or the wives that he already has, 
are making it, it's like any other ordinance, it's an outward manifestation of your resolution to obey a commandment of God. That's, the ordinance of baptism isn't any different. It's an outward manifestation to anybody who might be there or who's interested, all the witnesses and so forth, that you're committed to uh, obeying the commandments of God in your life and, and uh, putting the gospel into your conduct in your life. And this ordinance is the same way. It's a commitment, outward commitment of the woman that she's willing to participate in this love of uh, celestial plural marriage. And so it has that value, same as baptism has that value. I mean, Joseph Smith said you might as well baptize a bag of sand as an unrepentant sinner, but you can make the outward ordinance and, and not have the motivation. At least you've made that, and so you've declared yourself. Okay, that, that's really helpful for me to contextualize that. And you know what? I could ask you a hundred more questions. It's been a delight talking to you, but do you have time for two more? I know I've kept you quite a bit. Sure. One of the other things I was confused about is bloodlines in fundamentalism. It's, it, this is a tricky issue, and I know each group handles it differently, but is there a sort of a folklore doctrine or a doctrine or a culture of uh, bloodlines? There's a policy that we follow, and we follow it because of the law of the land, which in Utah and Arizona both forbid the marriage of first cousins. And so we just don't marry first cousins. Now, if we have a couple that wants to be married and they're first cousins, we have to tell them that we cannot do that. But the state of Colorado allows it. The state of California allows it. If they want to go and get a civil marriage in those states, that's fine. And there's no guarantee that they'll get a ceiling by the priesthood. But if they conduct themselves well and, and you know, in for a period of time, and it could be a couple of years, five years, it could be any you know period of time. If they're uh, devout members of the group, we may bring them in and give them a ceiling. But that's based on a legal marriage that they already have. But there's no like, um, you guys don't trace like certain families or lineages back to Jesus Christ, for example. No. Okay. Okay. So you there's no there's no idea of trying to keep a bloodline pure. Yeah, no, we don't have anything like that. (laughs) Okay. Oh, sorry. I should have worded it better. But yeah, I mean, that's helpful to to know the other stuff too. Tell us, tell us about how this is taught because I'm, I'm very interested. You know, I grew up in the LDS church and we're prepared for marriage. We have a very, like we have a manual that talks about it. Are there cultural things that prepare people for plural marriage and maybe some of the challenges like how to get along with other sister wives, how to share a household? Are girls prepared for this or are they just kind of thrown into it when it happens? Uh, yeah, they're kind of thrown into it and let it happen. I don't know how you can do it any other way. Uh, what they, what they get is what they comes across the pulpit. And there are sermons delivered about family relations and so on and so forth and, uh, the difference between monogamy and plural marriage. Uh, if you want to live plural marriage successfully, you gotta do it completely different from what monogamy is like, you know. Uh, and that's one of the, it's one of the things we have to kind of, it's a kind of a battleground <laughs> because people are born and they grow up as kids and, and whether, you know, Centennial Park is an open society. We're not trying to 
close people off like they are in Colorado City. And so in growing up, you come in contact with all the things that go on in the world, that is through television and now the Internet and so on and so forth, in which monogamy is portrayed as the ideal relationship and the and the great love affair between husband and wife and all that stuff, which is uh, not productive in plural marriage. You, you, you do that in plural marriage and you come in confronted with the jealousies that come along with it. If you have that attitude, you know, if a woman has the attitude of a monogamous woman, uh, she'll be jealous of any other woman, and then that disrupts the family and creates real problems. And so if you want to live it successfully, you've got to have a different philosophy. That doesn't mean there isn't love, but if you love people the way Christ taught us to love people, that's what makes it work. Do you guys accept uh, baptisms? Do you do missionary work or anything like that? No. Anybody that comes in has to be baptized. But they're not considered somehow less or anything like that. It's just... No, not in any way. This is a controversial question, but do you baptize anyone of African descent? Well, we have not done, and we haven't had the occasion to to uh, worry about that, but we would certainly baptize them. Oh, that's... That is quite progressive considering most the majority of the groups. So, Well, I don't know about the other groups, but take a look at the gospel. It's open to everybody, supposedly. That's, you know, and, and, and so as far as baptism goes, that's open to everybody. And that's what uh, we tell people. They come investigating. There was a woman that came in and, she was flabbergasted that we would be so open about that. But it, to me, at least, that's the gospel. So possibly ordination would be the problem, but baptism is open. That would be is the open. problem because, yeah, there's a very strong tradition, you know, in the history against that. What would you, I mean, would it take, I know that this was a huge problem for the, the LDS church when, you know, they lifted the restriction. Would the would the restriction have to be lifted from the council for that to happen? Yeah, yes. Okay. Well, I said I had two questions, but I asked about four, so so sorry. But, Claude, you've been such a delight to talk to. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Well, you're very welcome. Uh, I'm going to publish this, and then I'll send you a link. But I just, I really appreciate it. Is there anything else you want to share about your church or the history that we haven't covered? One one question we didn't complete, and that was about uh, domestic violence and, and child abuse. We approached that. Arizona has a pretty good way of looking at that. They, I mean, from our standpoint, they prefer, if possible, to have the community work those things out it, if they can before the authorities get involved. And so uh, we like that because if there's if there's a problem, we can try to counsel people and help by counseling to solve their problem. But on the other hand, sometimes what the counsel is that this situation is such that next time that happens, you've got to call the cops, and then the authorities are going to get involved. But uh, part of the reason why we organized the uh, CPAC. Uh, was to try and, and be more open with the authorities and so that they would have an avenue to get better acquainted with how we do things. And 
the fact that Arizona lets us handle them if we can handle them is a good thing for us because then it doesn't expose our family affairs. But when we have gotten involved with the authorities, they've been pretty accepting of you know things as they are and without prejudice. Have you guys been happy with the decriminalization progress happening? Oh, yes. Uh, that's one of the objectives of CPAC is decriminalization. Uh, you know, in the ideal world, uh, it would be legalization, but legalization poses some real serious problems because of the extent to which government is involved in marriages these days and family affairs. Does that involve, like, homosexual homosexual marriage? Does Yeah. Okay. And Centennial Park is against that, correct? Yes. I I think the this is what I think. I think marriage is an institution of gods. It had nothing to do with the law of the land. And if you read the seventh verse of the Doctrine and Covenants, section one thirty two, I think you'll get that sense. Uh the purpose of marriage is to create families, have children, and have a family. This cannot be done in a homosexual relationship. So I object to having same-sex relationships called marriage. Now, I don't object to what they call the civil union of all the legal implications. That It's a terrible thing to have have homosexual partners, and, and one of them's in the hospital, and the other partner who is, is their intimate acquaintance, and they've lived together, can't go there and make decisions about the welfare of that person because it's a homosexual situation. And yeah. uh, other things that are connected with marriage, like insurance and all that kind of stuff that Burial the government and... has laid on the marriage relation. So I think the idea of a civil union is good, but to call it marriage, I can't. And do you guys deal with homosexuality in, in Centennial Park? Uh, is there... A a policy in place for handling that amongst members? Well, we we treat them like all of our members. Uh, if it's a man and he can hold the priesthood, and we expect him to be morally upright like we would any other citizen, you know, of, of our uh, community, and uh, he may never choose to get married. And... Uh, what he carries on with with affairs that are of sexual nature is out of bounds. Now he may do it, but like I say, uh, these things are there a matter of the conscience. And, and if he gets discouraged and leaves, like Brother Johnson said, people would, then that's acceptable. You know, it's just it's striking to me because it it took a while for the LDS Church to get there to get to that point too, where we would still let them hold an office and a calling or an ordination because there was a time where if there was even rumors of it, you could face a church court. So it's so, it's so striking to me. And I've, you know, Centennial Park has a reputation for this, but of being, you know, people think that because it's polygamous, it's this regressive society, but in many, many ways, Centennial Park is very progressive, progressive, especially considering Mormon fundamentalists. I don't know if you like the term progressive. I don't know how that sits with you, but it just seems open. Oh, that, I, seems, I don't know with that term. <laughs> yeah, I've like I said, I have a soft spot for the, the folks that I know, and um, so I wanted to do, to do it justice and have you on. So I just really appreciate you being willing to talk. 